Hello, and welcome to the Bloodstream Podcast. It's a show serving the greater bleeding disorders community brought to you by Believe Limited and Bloodstream Media and made possible thanks to our presenting sponsor, Takeda. I am your patient, advocate, and host, Patrick James Lynch. And I am your healthcare advocate, nonprofit nerd, and other host, Amy Board, reminding you to please speak with a healthcare professional before making any treatment decisions. Do you mean to tell me you are not a healthcare professional? I am not. I cannot begin to tell you how much of a non-healthcare professional I am. Cool. Just wanted to clarify. On today's <laughs> show, Amy, this non-healthcare professional, and I mm. are here still at still. In San Antonio. We've just moved here. We will never leave. We just now live in we Texas. We love a Marriott, y'all. It's so fantastic. Yeah, this is one of the most special mm. Marriott properties I think I've Hotel ever eggs. seen. Hotel eggs. Ooh, everybody. Hotel eggs. R- wet potatoes. Wet I just potatoes. can't get enough breakfast <laughs> wet potatoes to satisfy my endless appetite mm-hmm. for starchy goodness. <laughs> I am uh, very happy that we're still here, and I'm glad we made this decision. This episode is essentially... Just our interview, I say just, I, bad use of language because it's an amazing interview yes. with Xander Masser, um, one of the keynote speakers at HFA Symposium, which is why we're here in Texas. You probably know that already, but if you didn't, that's what's going on here in San Antonio, the Hemophilia Federation of America's 2022 Symposium, a Texas-styled family reunion. And we had these two incredible keynote speakers helping set the tone for what this meeting is all about. Dark Cohen, who you heard on last week's episode, Conflict, uh, uh, mediator, and Xander Masser, who you've heard us uh, speak about in the previews a bit, lost his father who was born with severe hemophilia B to AIDS-related illness when he was only 14 years old in 2000, and just a few years ago started this project of unburying his father by uncovering 10,000 photographs from his career as a professional photographer. Xander joins us a little later in the episode, but Amy, we're here at the symposium. It's day two at the time that we're recording this. What have been some of your personal takeaways, experiences, moments from Symposium thus far? What's on your mind? It's been interesting. Everyone that I've seen has been like, it's weird to be back. Totally. Like, even very, very extroverted people have been like, it's weird. It's weird. Yeah. Um, but I think my favorite thing that I didn't anticipate coming into this, but there were there's been a few people that I've only known over Zoom that I love that I've seen, and it's been like this lovely thing. Both times, they've been like, so nice to meet you. Right. <laughs> but, you know, we've like had a whole thing, a whole relationship, you know, over Zoom for the past two years. Totally. I had that with Alex Abreu-Berea. I, she was one of mine. Right. And I mean, it was, and I love her. Like, She's excellent. love her deeply as a human being. And it was, it was very lovely to like meet her actually meet her. in person and I want to give a shout out along those lines as well to Shelly Horowitz I don't know what her official title with HFA is um, and I didn't realize I only know her virtually and online she keyed me into that when we met in person a yeah. couple days ago she also was one of the voices and one of the leaders in the rap session the first ever rap session for mild hemophilia which I attended not because I have mild hemophilia because my daughter does. Yeah. So now like I check a second box on the things. Yeah. I'm a person with and I'm a caregiver. And I go to the mile. I went to the first ever HFA mild team affiliate rap session. Shelly hosted that, was excellent. And and I, I knew she was an educated person and a good speaker and a community-oriented person. But I was just like, wow, I'm I'm really impressed. Which is also something about being in person. I think there's there's uh, what's the way to say this? 
there are elements of people's personality and yes. characteristics that just don't come through on a yeah. Zoom virtual way quite, I, I can't appreciate them. I don't think I could appreciate what Shelly was doing yesterday quite as well if it was over Zoom. And she was in the room and like, hey, you're, you know, you've kind of seemed a little bit yeah. kicked back. Is there anything that you want to bring to the table? Like she was really working the room in a way, yeah. which is great as a live presenter, does not translate so well on Zoom. So I guess that's kind of what I'm responding to too. There's a dynamic in the room at times right. that was like beyond just the ability to see each other and be in the same place and touch each other. There's actual dynamics that are leading to conversations that I don't think would have happened if even all the same people were on Zoom. Right. So thank you, Shelly. Cool to meet you, Alex. Absolutely. Uh, and we know, listeners, some of you have not been able to be at this meeting. Right. And so that's why we wanted to bring in some of these conversations. We love that it's not like, it, I think you can see um, at least most of the sessions here, I believe, are going to be virtual, which is great. But we're giving you some insight into some of these people that they've um, brought in because like Xander and, and you heard in our last episode of Dart, they're fantastic people. Um very rarely, I think, do you get two really stellar, moving, very powerful keynotes. So I've been very impressed. So have I, and there's been such a consistency. I've said this a few times, I may have already shared it on the show yeah. here, but there's been a real consistency and intentionality, it seems. Intentionality. In the selection of the keynotes and the yeah. themes driving the symposiums yeah. and the talking points and some of the rap sessions. I, so I'm very, I appreciate the, the, the obvious thoughtfulness that went into mm-hmm. this program. Again, it being the first in-person meeting for the community in three years. I know, and hats off to HFA staff for putting this on. And- hats off. Oh! You said hats off right behind us, our podcast room here, room 19 <laughs> at the Marriott River Center, shouts out, uh, is doubling as the final night storage uh-huh. room. We had to kick people out earlier because yeah. like, we have to record a podcast, please. Yeah. Um, what are we looking at here, Amy? We've There's got- at least two dozen cowboy hats behind Patrick. Yeah, That's that, what I'm looking at. Like Patrick You're framed. under-describing it. They are oversized <laughs> red yes. Foamy bucket cowboy hats. Cartoon looking cowboy hats. Yosemite Sam is, I think, in one of those boxes. He's going to come out. I think that one right there has Yosemite Sam in it. I don't know who's in the other ones. Uh, So that's kind of fun. We are definitely in Texas. And we got shirts over here, which I might, one of those might fall off the truck. I don't know. I can't say for sure. They kind of look neat. I might be walking out with them, Um, but we're recording this, so I shouldn't steal on mic. Anyway. Bravo uh, I to staff and planning committees. Great Put work. on an excellent conference. The first after our pandemic here in the hemophilia community. So big deal. Um, bravo. And it's it's always a, a bear to put a conference together, but uh, I, I would assume this one would be trickier than most. I would as well. And, and as you said, hats off. <laughs> Uh, so, without further delay, let's let's get to this conversation with Xander. It's a fantastic discussion. Um, there's a bunch that we say in the course of the discussion, so I'm, I'm tempted, Amy, to sort of relive moments of it with you here as like an introduction for the audience. But I think they're better served if we just get into it. Yeah. So let's get out of the way and get into the conversation with Xander Master. We'll be back on the other side to give a couple of reflections and sign off with you. But please enjoy this conversation with Xander Master. Amy and I are now joined by Xander Masser. Yesterday's, this is Thursday morning at the time we're recording this, of HFA's 2022 Symposium. He was yesterday's keynote speaker. What an incredible presentation, which we will talk about amongst other things. Xander, welcome to Bloodstream. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks so much for having me. Let's start with what's most important. We just established you and I were born about a month apart, 1985, (laughs) grew up in New York. Are you a Knicks fan? Are you pulling for the Nets right now? <laughs> Which is, this is important yeah. to start what, out with. Where's your basketball good. fandom? Where does this that come feels into great. things? It feels uh, it's great. an interesting question. I historically am a Knicks fan. Uh-huh. And historically, I'm a huge hoops fan in general. Yes. But 
I have to admit that the last like probably two decades, I kind of just stopped caring about sports, professional you're, sports. You're a Knicks fan. I can understand that. Yeah. <laughs> and, but when I was a huge Knicks fan was the nineties, went mm-hmm. to the games, huge Oakley fan, Ewing fan, Starks. That was, that was my team. So yep. I figured like after that team was done, probably good to just stop. Yeah. I, base, <laughs> the Yankees in baseball, that. that tracks for me pretty much exactly. Yeah. Uh, after the, the 2000 world series, I sort of faded away from that when he, when Jeter and Rivera and Posada and that core team. I was like, oh, that's my exit point. Yeah, and I'm reading Charles Oakley's book right now, so kind of reliving ah. some of the most exciting and painful points of my childhood. Yeah. But that is not what we're here to discuss. Yeah, um, I, I I mentioned this yesterday. We we touched on it briefly off mic, Xander, before we started. But I thought your keynote yesterday was. I think it's the most powerful keynote I have ever been a, a part of live. It was an incredible presentation. Your story is really moving. The project is really moving. Mm-hmm. The presentation as a presentation was very well put together. The multimedia elements, getting to hear the voices of other people in your and your father's and your mother's life, your brother's life, hearing your brother, just so powerful. And then, um, well, I'll save that. There's a reveal for later in the interview. There was a moment in there that I was like, wow, is he really about to do this? And, and you, you did, and it was extraordinary. So let's start. We've talked about, uh, we've, we've previewed this symposium and your keynote and your session. So the audience has heard a little bit about it, but not a ton. So if you would just give us a little bit of the backstory before we dive in. What is this project? What is Unburying My Father? And what was yesterday's keynote about? Sure. Uh, first of all, thank you for saying that really means a lot to me. Um, uh, essentially, you know, this project started more than two decades ago, uh, where my brother and I went into the basement of our childhood home. And, you know, obviously we knew our dad was a photographer and we knew that there was some stuff down there, but, Mm -hmm. you know, it was about, I think 10 years after he died. And, you know, we, we just wanted to reconnect. We wanted to see what he left you know, we, we didn't really have any clue, but it was like a deliberate act to just go down there and see what's there. Mm-hmm. And we just f- found so much stuff and it was kind of all over the place, pretty disorganized, like quote unquote buried. Mm. Um, and we, you know, like I said in, in the talk, like we just found these, I mean, I found 10,000 slides um, and they were in, some of them were organized, some of them were not, just all over. But we just started holding them up to the light, just like this. And, you know, some we recognized from, like, photos hanging on our walls, you know, as children and others we'd never seen before. And, and some around the town, right? You mentioned yesterday that the dentist's mm-hmm. office, this place, as he was a professional photographer. So his work was also just around your, your community. Yeah, and actually, I just, uh, I'll digress just for one second, but... Um, I just found out recently that his photos are still hanging there um, in the local library and the town hall, hmm. um, which is amazing. But anyway, that's a side, really side note. Um, so anyway, um, you know, we, we loved the photos and we were just like, these are, these are incredible. We don't think we're being biased. Like th- these photos are just amazing hmm. and we want to share them. But um, it just like, I was living very far away from New York. My brother was a musician. We didn't have the time. And hmm. Uh, like I said too in the talk, like I don't think I realized this at the time, but emotionally I was just not ready to take this on. Sure. Um, so fast forward many years, um, you know the the photos were moved around. The, our house was sold. Um, 
things were just put in boxes and it's like literally my dad's legacy was just packed up, shuffled around different places. And finally, um, a couple years ago, uh, a cousin of mine gave me a slide scanner, uh, like an old, I don't know what year it's from, but <laughs> it digitizes, uh, slides. And so she graciously gave me that. And I took all the, all 10,000 slides back home with me and I just started and I did not stop. Um, and I was relentless and I, I scanned all 10,000 and made this archive, um, both digital and physical. So I can find any individual photo I want to, which is awesome. Now, um, did you have, when you were starting that, was yeah. there, I'm, I'm curious, was your was that gift because you had started talking about maybe I'm ready or what, what really initiated your undertaking? Yeah, so we, my brother and I had created like a little bit of like a, I guess I would say like a first round fundraising pamphlet just to family and friends to help us pay to get some slides uh, scanned professionally. This okay. is just like a strictly photography project at this point. Got it. Uh, and so we did, we got a few hundred scanned, but um, you know, it didn't really make that much of a dent. It was cool to have them. Sure. Um, but anyway, one of the family members that uh, helped us out with that was like, Hey, I, um, my late husband had this scanner. I'm not using it. Do you want it? And so that's what prompted this to like actually take flight. Mm. Um, and so, yeah. And so I created the archive and I mean, it's just like, it was just so incredible to have all these photos on a computer and I could sift through them. And I, I went through all of them many times, like a lot. Um, and yeah. And, and, you know, at the same time it was like, okay, so here's these incredible photos. I want to share them, but my dad was not a famous artist. Nobody knew. I mean, he was, he was well known for his photography in his world and in our network. Sure. His friends, our family, you know, they all had his photos on the walls. So he, you know, that, that was his thing. But, you know, I had bigger ambitions because I, I think that his work deserves to be seen by when did that kick in? When, when in the process of digitizing the 10,000, did your ambitions begin to grow? Um, realistically, it was when I kind of took the other step of learning his story because mm -hmm. it, it was like, I had the idea, but it didn't seem feasible to me to just like, here's a photography book. I needed to make, I needed to make an impact and I needed to make people, I wanted to make people care. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, how better to do that? I mean, I knew my dad had this compelling story, but I didn't know anything about it other than, you know, he had hemophilia, he contracted HIV and he died from AIDS. You and know? you were 14 at the time he died, right? Just yeah. for listeners for the timeline. Okay. Yep. And that was 2000? Yep. January 6, 2000. And so anyway, so that prompted me. Um, I, I was just like, well, who, who, who better to tell my dad's story than all the people that knew him across his lifespan? And mm -hmm. You know, I, I always had this feeling like after he died up until forever that like, I just wanted to be my dad's friend. I wanted to sit on a chair and drink a beer with him and hear his stories from his life. You know, that's yeah. just like, it's still something I would, you know, if I could, I would. Yeah. Um, and so those are the kinds of questions I asked people, but also I, you know, as I said in the talk, I, I shared a few of the examples of the prompts, but basically I reached out to like, 40 or 50 people and just ask them to share stories. Um, and I gave a list of like probably 30 writing prompts. Some people use them, some people didn't. 
And it was just incredible. Like it was just one after the other, just come into my inbox. I'd be in the middle of the day doing something and just be blown over by a story or start laughing or crying or, you know, it's just like, I felt so much when I would read these stories and that's when I was like, okay, now, now I've got something here. And I think that this is, this is shareable. But what really took me over the edge was, was when I started to interject myself um, because, you know, I'm collecting stories from other people, but where do I fit in, in my dad's story? And mm. where do I, you know, at what point do I come in and what do I want to say? And I realized what I wanted to say was a lot of things I never said to anybody, which was about my experience of his death. Um, what, you know, what, what it was like for me to go through that. And, you know, I, I spent so many years in silence about what I went through and kind of, I don't know, just ignoring it or pretending it didn't happen or avoiding the topic entirely yeah. for, for years and years. And so just putting it on paper, like even without anyone other than my wife really seeing it, it was like, had this profound impact on me. Yeah. And, um, you know, I started to share it with a few other people and, you know, it just, it just became obvious that this could touch other people, be meaningful for other people. Um, you know, I, I, at some point heard a quote somewhere, I can't remember who said <laughs> it, but um, somebody said that the more personal a story is, the more universal it is. Mm -hmm. And that, and, and I've just like totally gone with that approach. And, and what I'm sharing is very personal um, and it's also very collective. Mm -hmm. um, and so I'm going to stop there because I don't remember where, <laughs> what the question was anymore, but um, <laughs> yeah, that's kind of the gist of the project. And now, and now it's a book. It's a keynote, it's a photography exhibit, it's a workshop, and it's a really big part of my life. And I want to talk more about those, those, those different elements, but yeah. before we move too far past the, that, that period of, of silence mm -hmm. that you described, you mentioned in the presentation very courageously, I thought, the um, strife tension between you and your mom and how you were each projecting mm -hmm. or, for lack of a better way of putting it, taking out your feelings in some way on the other. Yeah. Um, my grandmother and my mother raised my brother and I, my grandmother died unexpectedly and four months later, my little brother died. Wow. So my mother and I for a period thereafter had a lot that we were contending with and there was a plenty of misdirected energy in, in hindsight. So that, that struck a chord with me very much so. But I'm actually curious about your brother. Sure. Did the two of you Talk about your dad's passing, share your experience. What was, how did your relationship to your brother, how was that impacted by your, your father's death? That's a great question that um, I don't think anyone's asked me yet. So thank you for that question. Okay, bloodstream. <laughs> <Wait a minute. laughs> yeah. Um, you know, my brother is my best friend. Um, absolutely love him. And um, I think, so he's quoted in the book, somewhere along the way as saying that somebody told him that he was now the man of the house, which like, I don't agree with that sentiment at all. Sure. Yeah. And I don't think he does. Wow. What a thing to hear. Yeah. I mean, it's a, like, you know, yeah. it's a, it's a ridiculous thing to say to somebody How who, old was who's he? grieving. He was 17 when yeah. someone oh, said that my. to him. So anyway, that aside, I do think he internalized that a little bit yeah. and he's not a father figure for me and he didn't, become one, but, but 
what I can say is that after my dad died, I think this coincides with age, but we just stopped fighting. We stopped any ten like we had normal sibling, what you know, he would beat me up and I would cry and whatever. Sure. You know, we did a lot of that. <laughs> um, but we really became closer and um he just became more of like a a friend and a mentor to me. And I just wanted to follow in his footsteps and I became a musician like him mm. and wanted to do all the things he was doing. And, you know, what did we talk about it? Yeah, but not in depth. Um, I don't think we had the language. Mm -hmm. um, we weren't we weren't really guided all that much to to speak, but I don't think we needed to. Um, I think I think our connection was was strong enough and made stronger by going through this together. Sure. But at the same time, a year after my dad died, my brother moved out and went mm -hmm. to college which was so hard yeah. Uh, yeah, for me and for my mom. It was, I mean, I remember dropping him off at college in Boston and just like my mom and I just crying and like, we were just like, what are we going to do? Yeah. Wow. Uh, yeah. And so, and, and then it became the two of us um, and eventually became a third person, which is my, my now stepdad. Hmm. Um, but that came a, a few years later. Um, I'm sure that but, came with its own interesting emotional dynamic. Yeah, dynamics. Yeah. 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 I mean, there's there's so much to <laughs> to, to break down if we want to. But, <laughs> um, but anyway, so so my brother's absence was felt. Yeah. Um, it really was. And going from four to three is really tough. And I think going from three to two is yeah. maybe even tougher. Mm -hmm. Um, because you know, a, a two person household, um, there's just more empty space. Um, seems like there's more room for, for tension, uh, especially when there's silence or, um, you know, grief. Hmm. I'll just say when there's grief, yeah. um, you know? And so, you know, like I said in the talk, like I did go to bereavement groups and I went to therapy. Um, but it, it just, I wasn't there. My, I wasn't ready. I didn't want to participate. Yeah. Um, I, I honestly don't think it helped me all that much. Um, maybe it did um, in ways that I'm not aware of, but sure. um, I don't think I was ready for it. What were you told um, about hemophilia and HIV and AIDS? What was the story that was told to you? And how has this project maybe changed your um, idea of maybe what actually happened? Yeah. Um, that's such an excellent question. Um, what I was told was very basic. Um, I knew my dad had hemophilia at, at some point they told us, I don't, I don't actually remember that conversation. Um, I remember seeing my dad infuse one time. Um, Just once. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Uh, I like walked into his dark room slash studio and he was infusing it. It didn't like, I mean, clearly it had some impact on me because I remember it vividly, right. but it wasn't like, I don't remember being upset by it or anything like that. It was just. So it wasn't part of your daily minutia of life. Not at all. Hmm. No. Um, you know, my dad had physical disabilities that I knew were related mm. to his hemophilia. Did I know the physiology about it or anything like that? No. Yeah. Um, and then, uh, you know, when I was, 10 or 11, um, my parents sat us down and they told us about my dad's HIV infection and that he had AIDS. Um, and they had you know, known at that point for how long? 
So my dad was diagnosed in 1986. Okay. Um, and his doctors had deduced that he contracted it in the early 80s. So how long he had it before mm. that, not really sure. But it's very clear that he had it before I was born and before my brother was born. Mm. Um, that that alone is like its own crazy miracle um, totally. that I still don't quite understand. But, <laughs> um, and had you... Yeah. Um, was it a part of your life separately before he told you? I mean, just knowing that the HIV crisis was happening, nope. were you aware? Okay, so it wasn't in public conscious. No, I had no idea. Okay. Um, I mean, I, I knew what AIDS was, okay. yes. yes. But in the context of hemophilia or what my yeah. dad was going through or his involvement in this community, yeah. I, I really didn't know. It was not, you know, for better or for worse, I... I was sheltered from that. And, that and so young too. Like we were yeah. alive during this period, but but so young. Right. So if yeah. parents were actively not putting it in the family's conversations, if it's not being discussed, it, it wouldn't. Like even, I, I remember I was aware of HIV and AIDS. I don't remember if I even was cognizant that it had something to do, that there was a hemophilia tie-in just being a right. five, six, seven-year-old. So seems very, it, that doesn't surprise me to hear, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I think the one thing that I knew about AIDS is that people who get it die. Yep. Mm. That's about it. Okay. And so when they told us that, it was like, okay, so my dad's going to die from this. Oh. I knew that to be a fact. Instantly. Yeah, and but that was that was the end of the conversation. That was it until the the next few th uh, three years before he died. Never talked about. Uh, I remember seeing my dad take a whole ton of pills and medications. I remember a couple family trips that we had to leave early because he really wasn't feeling well. Mm. Um, but but it was not talked about. And to come back to your question, it was so important to me to read and watch and listen about uh, tainted blood or contaminated blood story. Um, and so I, I did so much consuming of it that there's a whole section in my book about kind of the, the timeline of, of what went down, how it happened. Um, and it's, you know, it's for people in this community, but it's also really for people who are not so familiar important. with yes. hemophilia and what yes. the history is. Um, and, and in conjunction with that, I learned about my dad's advocacy work, his involvement in this community. Mm. I actually, um, yeah, I actually met someone yesterday who knew my dad, um, through wow. advocacy work, which is pretty amazing. Um, yeah. but yeah. And so it was just, it, it just, it opened my world because yeah. it was just like, my dad's not alone in this. Yeah. And I'm not alone. And my family isn't alone. There's so many people that went through this experience. And it was really important for me to put that in the book and provide that context for people. Um, and so in the book, you'll see uh, an about hemophilia section, which talks mostly about treatment and history and development of treatment. It's short. It's not, you know, it's not, I'm not writing a research and I'm not writing a textbook. Right. Um, but I, but it's important to provide context. Yeah, exactly. Um, and then later on, there's the tainted blood section, um, and then we, and then on from there. But um, it was, it, it's, it's changed my whole perspective to to learn about this and to to know um, about, you know, just just the community of people and like while learning about it and then being embraced by HFA and kind of learning about HFA's history a little bit. It's just like I don't know. It all came together kind of 
I don't want to use the word perfectly, but perfect, like it was just the right timing for all yeah. of this to kind of happen. Yeah, serendipitous or fortuitous or, or, or something. Yes, yeah. that's the word yeah. I was looking for. What, what have you learned about grief from this process? That was a question during the presentation that I, I jotted down. What has this process of creating the, the book and the workshop and doing this deep internal work and processing, what has it taught you about the grieving process? Um, it's, well, broadly speaking, um, it never ends. Mm. Uh, it does change over time. Mm. Um, and the way in which it changes is associated with what you do with it and how you, how you choose to process. So like there's, you know, the steps of grief that a lot of people talk about, um, which, you know, I think I experienced some of not in a linear fashion at all. Mm. Um, they come and go. Mm -hmm. Um, but, uh, what I mean by what you do with it is that I lived with grief for a long time in total isolation, in silence. Um, and it impacted my self-confidence. It impacted my behaviors in terms of like, um, I think what I'm trying to say is that what, what finally happened is that I, I found a way to make some meaning out of my grief. Mm. Mm. And so it has always been very difficult for me to just sit and talk, like let's say in talk therapy, which I, I think is a, an amazing thing Sure, um, for those who are ready for it and mm. who would benefit. I think most people would benefit from talk therapy, but this kind of ties into my profession, which is occupational therapy. Mm which is using, so the word occupational does not mean job. It means activity, action, doing something, the act of doing. Mm -hmm. And so that ties in really well with my project, which is very much an act of a lot of doing. And what I, you know, the, the way that I've worked with my dad's photos and telling his story and sharing mine is my therapy. Like it has completely changed my, my perspective, the way that I feel about myself and my dad. And like, I think in grief work, in my experience, there's so much talk about death and how mm -hmm. to process death. Mm -hmm. uh, at least that's what I experienced. And I think other people would probably feel the same. And life just gets left out or it can, and that's not fair and it's not right. And, you know, I said this in my talk, but like, you know, I found, I did find some meaning and some part of myself in my dad's death, meaning that I built resilience or I discovered my resilience. Mm -hmm. um, I think that I'm emotionally intelligent for having mm -hmm. gone through this. Um, and, and I practice gratitude just mm -hmm. without even thinking about it. I'm just grateful to be alive, to be here, to be doing anything. And I take a lot of that from my dad because I think he was the same way. But when I started to hear stories about my dad from his friends and family and people, it was like, oh, that, that could just easily be a story about me. Mm. That, that was, that's me. That's, that I do the same thing. And so I just started to realize like, wow, my dad's life is so much more important to me than his death. But I never, that, that thought never crossed my mind ever. And so the pivot from death to life is so crucial to my healing process. And um, it's, it's, you know, it's a crucial point of my workshop is, is focusing on life and 
I don't want to discount death. It's a very important part of life. And we all, you know, (laughs) we're all going to die and we're all going to experience other people dying too. But, um, you know, we can't leave out life. And I think even more than that, we need to prioritize life. Tell us about your dad. You know, what did you learn about his creativity, his eye? What was, what are some of the stories? What did you, tell us about your dad? Um, he, he was, I mean, from the stories that I hear as far as like a descriptor of him, I think he was a uniquely universally loved human being. Mm. Um, everybody loved him. <laughs> Um, he was very funny and I remember that, like he was just an absolutely, he had an incredible sense of humor, um, and he was very gentle, um, but not shy. Um, just like, uh, I would say a very friendly person and a lot of friends, um, a lot of people, uh, were involved in his life. There were, I think over 500 people at his funeral. Um, and he, you know, the, the story from the stories I, I gathered, he just cared so deeply about his family and friends. And like, uh, one really cool thing is that a lot of kids of my dad's friends wrote to me and they were just like, they, they, the, the common theme was that he felt like my friend too. And like my dad would sit with them and talk to them like they were peers and like one guy, his name's Evan. Um, his mom wrote me this story that um, Evan had a girlfriend who was a dancer and my dad um, took a lot of photos of the Alvin Ailey dance company and Evan wanted to give him, uh, sorry, to give his girlfriend a photo and he was scared to ask whatever, but his mom made a mask and he called my dad and, and he was just like, Evan, like I would do anything for you. Like here's a photo don't pay me any money. Like, please have this. And like, it it was just like a very touching and kind of telling story about who my dad was. Yeah. yeah, I I don't know. It's hard to describe my dad. He's, he was like, he was a clearly incredible artist. Mm. And I think what helped me to realize that is knowing how much he kept inside in terms of his own, you know, if you live with that much illness and you live with that much difficulty, challenges, barriers to life, you, you like one cannot not have a lot of package with, or, you know, baggage with that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't think he talked about it a lot, but it allowed me to appreciate his photography because in his photos, I see, I would describe his photography as deeply human and Hmm. I can feel a human touch. I can feel, um, empathy. I can, I can see how my dad would be behind the lens trying to capture the, the spirit, the aura of a person in his photos. And when you go into the exhibit, I, I really think you will feel the same thing. Um, and so I think my dad was a deeply human individual. Hmm. The moment I was alluding to earlier about maybe almost coming up on two thirds through your presentation, you presented on screen the eulogy that you had written for your father and mentioned that at the time you didn't 
read it. Um, I believe someone read it for you, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Um, and that you had never actually read it in front of people before, and that yesterday was about to become the first time that you read your father's eulogy in mm-hmm. front of anyone. And that was such a profound moment, and I felt so just fortunate to be in the room for what you were about to share. And I, too, wrote and never delivered a eulogy for my brother. So, oh, wow. again, there was, I think, uh, a moment where I saw you doing something that I didn't do but felt like I was going to be a part of your moment, and that was doing something for me, too. When did you know that you wanted to do that? And was there your composure and ability to do that also? Wow. Um, very imp- Your composure throughout what was such a sincere, heartfelt, personal presentation uh, is model, it's role model for how to speak about something so personal sincerely while still thinking your thoughts and using your breath and moving forward. But that in particular was quite an undertaking. Is there anything about that moment yesterday that surprised you? Or if you could just take us even into what was going through your head as like, here we are, I'm, I'm about to do this. Am I really going to do this? Can I get through this? What, what was going through your head? Um, well, I'm tearing up right now, if that's any indication. Oh. Just take a second. And I actually am curious to know a little bit more about your experience of that. But um, it was incredibly difficult. I'm not going to apologize. Good. And take your time. Thank you. You're welcome. It's interesting. Like this, yesterday's presentation was actually more emotionally difficult than I thought it would be um, only because I I have given this talk twice, um, but only virtually. Mm. So Um, yesterday was the first in person, which was a whole other ball game mm. uh, and very different experience. Um, You know, when I, when I was practicing this talk months ago, um, I would practice with my wife and we just could never make it through this part. Like we had to stop every time. And um, so it's, it's, it's just an emotionally challenging thing, but I knew that I wanted to do it. I knew that I needed to do it. And I think part of me regrets not reading it at the funeral. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's, you know, like who gets to read their eulogy again, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Nobody. It's not, it's not a thing that happens. Not really a venue for it most of the time. No, no, (laughs) definitely not. Um, What a venue for it here. Yeah. (laughs) And, you know, I think I was, well, first of all, I like, I'm not boasting, but I was not expecting to get a standing ovation from reading it, Mm -hmm. but I did. And it was, you know, that's, that's the other thing. Like you don't applaud for a eulogy, right? (laughs) Who's ever done that? Um, That's my first time applauding. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I don't think anyone's ever done that. So um, that was, I mean, it was cool. I I was so, I I was floored by, by the reaction, to be honest. Um, And I just felt supported. And it's like, that to me is in a nutshell, what this project is, is like the more vulnerable I get, the more love I receive. Mm. And that, that message needs to be conveyed more because it's, you know, like the more, the more difficult or challenging one's life is, you know, the only way to receive support and love is to share what's going on in your life 
Otherwise, right. nobody knows. Mm-mm. And that's what I lived for so long. And it's like, I, I'm done living that life. I can't do it anymore. So the more I share, the more love I receive over and over and over again, whether it's on social media or sitting at a table and talking mm-hmm. about this, um, you know, it's been incredible. And so that was like, that was the pinnacle of, the, of experiencing that, you know, from strangers, people yeah. who don't know me, it was incredible. Um, so, I mean, thank you for, for doing that for anyone who's listening or who was there. Have you um, felt a little bit known being here within the hemophilia community? Um, so many people here from HFA have uh, survived the HIV crisis or mm-hmm. have a loved one that you know did not survive. Have you felt a little known? Has it been different? What what have has um, your experience been? I mean, someone stopped me in the elevator last night and you know thanked me for the keynote and told me he wanted to buy a book, <laughs> which is cool. <laughs> um, I, I don't know. I, um, it's for me, it's like whether I'm known or not is not important. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's more like, I, I've just had a lot of like individual interactions of people coming up to me, crying, hugging me, you know, there's a lot of crying going on. <laughs> mm-hmm. I am, I, you know, whether I like it or not, I'm, I do like it. I'm, I think I'm helping people to emote. Mm. and to process some of their own experiences. And that's important to me. Um, so, you know, I had a guy come up to me yesterday and he showed me a photo of his son, who's a college baseball player with hemophilia. And he was just like, you know, my son playing baseball just would not be possible without someone like your dad doing what he did. And, you know, it's, I don't know going into this because I don't know the people here and I'm, have not been involved in this community to receive anything like that from someone I don't know is, is just, I don't know. It's incredible. Like it's, it's kind of mind boggling and feels surreal sometimes, but also very, very real. You mentioned that there's, there's the book, the exhibit, the workshop, this has become such a big part of your life. So tell us a little bit about the, the book and the workshop and what is the larger unbearing my father program that will exist coming out of HFA? What happens after HFA? That is a great question. (laughs) Um, I mean, I don't really know the answer, um, but I have a few things coming up and I have, you know, hopes and dreams. Um, But um, basically, uh, well, why don't I talk about the workshop for a second? Sure, Um, please. So uh, what I've done is I've taken my creative process and I've broken it down into 10 steps. And the reason I did that is um, that I want people, I mean, I've been to a million workshops where I leave and it's like, I got useful information, but I don't know what to do with that. Like Mm -hmm. it's not, it's often not practical, at least in my experience. And as an occupational therapist where it's about doing things, I'm sure that's particularly (laughs) irksome. Yes. <laughs> Thank you for pointing that out. 100%. And so, you know, I, I'm using my OT perspective, my education and my practice um, to create this workshop. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, it could be an OT workshop. I'm not dubbing it one, but mm-hmm. it easily could be. Mm-hmm. Um, and the reason for that is that it's all about doing. And you'll mm-hmm. if you see the workshop on every step, there's a thing that says do. And then it's what the people will do. And so 
with the workshop comes a workbook and it's a 10 step thing. And so after the workshop's over, someone who takes it will leave and say, I, I know exactly what to do on each step in order to, and, and the goal of the workshop is to facilitate um, creating, I recently learned a term called memorial art mm-hmm. um, and I kind of like it. So mm. I'm using it. Um, but a way to um, creatively honor somebody that they have lost. Mm. And for me, it turned into a book. Um, For somebody else, it could be a song, a dance, a letter, a a trip. It could be anything. Mm. But it has to come from their brain and from their creativity. And I believe everybody has that inside of them. Mm. And these these 10 steps, these 10 principles would, would help regardless of what someone's particular form of memorial art were to be. Yeah. 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 It could be anything. I mean, the workshop is heavy on writing, but writing leads to other ideas. Sure. Yeah. Uh, You know, writing is just a way to get ideas out. Yeah. It doesn't have to turn into something written. Um, so yeah, that's how the workshop will, will work. Um, I am doing it again for uh, World Federation of Hemophilia. Oh, great. Uh, which, too, I guess it's in your backyard in Montreal. Yeah, yeah it is. Uh, new just happened to work out that way. So um, I'll be doing that in a couple weeks. Mm-hmm. Um, and they have a whole session on memorial art um, at that at the Congress there. Mm-hmm. So oh, I'll wow. be participating in that as well. How appropriate. That's yeah, great. yeah. It was, uh, I saw their like, their website and what was going on. And I was like, why am I not involved in this? Yeah. And then I got myself involved. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And is the book available? Can people get it? Yes. So yes and no. Um, Okay. If you're at HFA uh, this week, the answer is yes. Um, Good for us. Yeah. I've got a uh, small stock here. Um, The rest of the books are currently on a boat and they're on their way. Ah. (laughs) So um, but uh, if you're not at HFA and you are interested, you can pre-order uh, on my website. Um, so we can share that information, but it's uh, randymasterphoto.com. Randymasterphoto.com. And we'll yep. have that in the program notes mm-hmm. as well. Okay, so people can pre-order it through yep. randymasterphoto.com. Yep. That's, that's great. I'm and then I have um, a, as of now, unannounced um, release event. Um, should I announce it right now? Are you targeting <laughs> a certain broad time frame? Would that be more comfortable to announce or not announce anything? You Let's know what? Peer pressure him into That's announcing. That's a good idea. Okay. Yeah. yeah. You know what? It's a good idea because by the time I by the time this podcast comes out, it will be, have been announced. Oh, there we go. Okay. So we're so safe. Let's do that. Okay. Okay. And I'm really excited about this because um, so the event is June twelfth. And it's in Chappaqua, New York, which is the town that I grew up in. And it's at the Chappaqua Public Library. And the reason that that is so meaningful is that my dad's photos hung on the walls of that library for a very long time. And when I reached out to them, um, I badgered them like wild because I was (laughs) like, this has to happen here. They have like an amazing space to do it in, mm. but the, they have, they actually have a, a gallery curator on staff there. Oh. And when I finally spoke to him, he was like, Oh yeah, I'm actually reframing your dad's photo right now. Oh. Um, which is, you know, I didn't, I didn't know that his photos were still hanging. Like they did a whole renovation there over the past few years and the photo remained. Um, and so my dad was a very active community member in our town. He was our little league's equipment manager. Mm-hmm. He was the town's go-to photographer, like 
all the families were in my basement all the time. I would just come down and see like random people from my high school or, yeah. or middle school, not high school, middle school uh, and their families being photographed. And, um, you know, he, he was just known in the community. And um, so it's just, it's so meaningful and important for me to do it there. Yeah. Um, and so that will be on June 12th at the Chappaqua Public Library. And after that, obviously books will be available wherever and whenever. Um, but that's the event and, and it will be in conjunction with a, um, a photo exhibit there as well. So their, mm -hmm. their gallery curator is helping me to curate another photo exhibit uh, in their very beautiful space. Fantastic. We'll do a book reading and um, have some wine and cheese and celebrate. So June 12th. Yep. And then for anyone who's listening who will be at the World Congress, the WFH World Congress in May, you now know that Xander will be there as well. So keep an eye out for uh, him and, and those programs there. Um, let me see. The very last thing I want to ask you about with the, the time that we have remaining, jotted some questions down during the presentation yesterday. A lot of them we've touched on in one way or another. But this is one that, and this is personal, but to your point, if I'm personal and vulnerable, it becomes more relatable, right? So yeah. you said something along the lines of that his identity as a photographer overpowered his identity as a, as a sick person or as a person mm. with, with battling different illnesses. And I think about identity a lot. And I think about the identity that when you grow up with something that since day one I've had, that your dad had, and we all have things that since day one we've grown up with that aren't necessarily true of everybody we see every day. It's hard sometimes for that part of my identity to take a back seat to other parts and it's a tension and a frustration that, that I can have. Mm -hmm. And so often it's, it's really striving to, but I'm trying to, I'm trying to, I'm a content, I'm a filmmaker, I'm a do podcast, do these other things. I'm trying to power that identity over this other piece. My work is always so intertwined. It can be kind of complicated, mm -hmm. but I was wondering about that for you. Have you learned anything about your identity and your sense of self in the world through this process based on what you learned about your father and his seeming sense of self and identity? Um, yeah, I think I have. I mean, I think an important question to consider is like, how do we create identity? That's what I meant to ask. Yeah. <laughs> and, and the answer is, and again, you know, like I am an OT, so I have to keep tying it back in, but it's by doing, you know, our identities are tied in with what we do. And my dad was a relentless photographer. I mean, mm -hmm. he, was constantly taking photos, maybe to a fault. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, not really, because he left behind so much stuff that's amazing. But, but um, I think it consumed him. But I think in a good way. And I think it was his his release and his way of maybe processing a little bit of of what he went through. Um, and which, by the way creativity, uh, you know, this goes, I think probably without me saying, but is an extremely valid way to express what you're going through. Um, mm -hmm. But um, that was what he did. And I think that if he had a profession that either he didn't love or didn't care about, um, his sickness, his illness, and all of his medical issues could have maybe overpowered or taken over how he identified. And um, that's why it's so important to, when, when you're doing or choosing what to do, it has to be meaningful and you have to, and it should be meaningful and it should be 
something that um, brings joy, brings um, creativity, brings something that you actually care about. And I think the more that he did that, the more it just became like he, he was a very sick man. He really was, mm -hmm. but nobody knew him as that. I mean, yes, they saw that he had a limp, that he was maybe a little fragile. He was very thin, mm. but did people know him for that? No, they knew him because he had a camera around his neck and he took incredible photos right. and, and, and he, and he just clearly loved it. And so, um, you know, I think I'm taking this on this project, you know, has become a part of my identity and, and it's because I care so much about it and it's been so incredibly meaningful for me to do it. And so, um, yeah, that's, this is a new part of my identity and it's, to be honest with you, I'm still getting used to it. Fair. I'm not used to being vulnerable. I'm not used to speaking about all of this openly, but it's just been incredible because instead of trying to bring up the topic, what I have is a book. People can read the book or they can just know that I'm doing this and ask me questions. And it's already facilitated incredible conversations with people that I would not even friends that I just, I wouldn't talk about this normally, but mm -hmm. said, Oh, I know you're doing this thing. Tell me about it. Yeah. And then they start talking about stuff that they went through or yeah. their families or someone that they know that died. And, you know, it, it's just like, it's, it's blooming and it's blossoming and that's at the core of this. And I guess that gets to my identity is that I, I identify as a human connector, someone who wants to connect. And this is really doing that for me. It's amazing work. We need to let you go so that you can be present for that amazing work at your exhibit, which is in less we than 10 minutes. We could talk to you all day. Yeah, we could be here for the rest of the day. <laughs> um, but I want to thank you for the time you've given us today. Thank you for yesterday's so gracious, keynote. Thank you, thank you for your, your courage and your willingness to do this work. And I think the thing you said about this is a book, yes, for people affected by hemophilia and co-contamination, but also for just people in the world. That's wonderful, and I think it's so important that the messaging and the messages about hemophilia, the blood contamination, the importance of blood safety, to sneak that in <laughs> to all kinds of other yeah. end products that have other larger purposes in mind, but that that's a thread in the story feels very important to me when we talk about how do we expand the sphere of awareness and advocacy. It's through projects like yours that reach new people, key them in, oh, this amazing photographer also has this really curious part of his story that led to his premature death. Wow, I never knew about that. Now they've got a connection point to hemophilia and the and the contamination crisis. Yep. That if we were just passing them flyers on the street or screaming at people that they would never they would never pay attention. Yeah. So I I just want to I guess close by in particular acknowledging that that's such important advocacy and 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 uh, activism work and based on your father's own advocacy and activism work. I'm sure it's a, a piece of what you're doing that he would very much appreciate. So thank you for doing it. And I'm, I'm excited to see your exhibit in about five minutes. Thanks. I really appreciate it. And I do feel like I'm continuing his work and, and that feels really special. And thanks so much for having me, for listening to my talk, um, saying what you said. It's, it's just been, it's been an amazing couple of days already and uh, looking forward to getting that exhibit going. RandyMasserPhoto.com. Pre-order the book on burying my father. Xander Masser, thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks again to Xander. It was phenomenal. 
That was fun. Conversation. Um, again, everyone, that is randymasterphoto.com. Uh, you can pre-order the book. You can learn more about the project. And of course, that link will be in the program notes. Please check it out. Very moving. And um, his eye is wonderful. His creative eye is wonderful. It's phenomenal photos. So check For, it out. This, I shouldn't even just admit this. This is one of those, can you just let it go? <laughs> when you just said his eye's phenomenal, I thought you were talking about Xander Master's eyes. <laughs> And maybe it's because I'm looking at you in the seat that he was sitting in not too long ago and with masks on, because we were doing that interview in masks, I really only see his eyes. And I was like, oh, interesting. You want to make a comment on his? Cool, they struck you. He did have nice eyes. These are all (laughs) things that went through my head in a microsecond. No, wait, Randy. Randy's eye as a photographer. So now I'm right there with you. Again, could have let that go, but. No, but actually that's a great clarification. 10 bucks, there was somebody out there, or my mom's listening to this and was like, his eyes were great. This was for you. That was for you. That was for you. Yeah. Um, I speaking of moms, I got a chance to meet his mom. I believe her first name is Eileen uh, Xanders, Randy's wife, uh, in the exhibit. So after we recorded with him and let him go to his exhibit that was opening in three seconds, we went over there. Beautiful room, um, really well designed. And his mom was in there. We just got to chatting for a little bit. We were introduced by somebody. And I didn't realize at first it was his mom. I could tell this was a New Yorker. So immediately I was like, oh, this is my people. Like I can chat with this lady. I like her attitude. Um, and then at some point she was like, oh, I'm his mom. And she like gestured to it. I was like, oh, okay. Now I know what I'm talking about. Um, but actually speaking of being at that exhibit, as I was walking out, chat with Xander for another few minutes and he mentioned there was something that he had intended to bring up on the show, but didn't. And I, I said to him, well, what is it? You know, Amy and I are still doing the intros, outros. And, you know, if it's, if it's interesting, <laughs> then I can, I can pull it in. But it was something that, again, like a lot of pieces of his story that I personally really related to. And he spoke about how this project has created this real interdependence between him and his dad, how they need each other. And how his dad, you know, this is my interpretation, so I want to respect him. These are not necessarily his direct words, but my takeaway from that little conversation that we had after the recording was that in order for his dad's story to now be told, Xander's an inextricable part of it. And this project is an inextricable part of it. But for Xander as well, at in his life now, this project and what he has learned about himself and his family through learning about his father and this project, it's now inextricable from who he is, and it's changed his relationship to his dad. And I mean, I've, I think I've spoken about that on Bloodstream with my brother, like my relationship to this person who's been gone for over 15 years, in the case of Xander, his dad's been gone 22, continues to change as my life evolves and as, as new things happen, as new influences come in. And I just, I thought that that idea that they need each other, that his dad needs him now, and he needs his dad now in a really unique way, I, th- I was glad he brought that up, and it, it struck me because I feel like, yeah, I don't know if I don't know if I share exactly that sense of I need Adam and he needs me. I don't know if it's you know a hundred percent. I mean, they're different circumstances, they're different stories, we're different people, but there is a sense of there is a certain amount of I guess interdependence or intertwinedness in our stories that is interesting to me. And as he spoke about that, I was like, I. I think I know where that comes from. So mm-hmm. I was glad he mentioned it and that we just had an opportunity to kind of bring that in here at the end of the conversation because I think it it, it connects. I'm sure there's many people out there listening who have experienced loss, have experienced grief, don't have someone in their lives anymore, but still have a relationship to that person that feels ever-changing or capable of evolving. And it's important to give 
it's important to acknowledge that that is possible. And that I think actually that is healthy because as we've heard many people say in different contexts, uh, grief doesn't end, it doesn't go away. The sense of loss doesn't just disappear. It, it, it ebbs and it flows much like a chronic disease. There's no like end point you're trying to strive toward. It's just a matter of, you know, there's ups and downs and you do your best to cope and manage and continue on with life, but it's a part of you forever. So the more peace we can have with that process and the more we can do to inform how we, in a healthy way, inform that process, the better. And work like what Xander's doing to externalize his internal world, communicate about it, and share his vulnerability for his benefit and the benefit of everyone he shares it with. The gift that that gives everybody he shares it with um, is just something that I'm I'm really proud to have been a part of at this symposium. And I'm very proud and thankful that we have this program. Yeah to be able to bring him on, talk more about his story, learn more about him. And I suppose I want to just maybe throw a little thank you to Takeda in there for enabling Bloodstream to do stuff like this. We wouldn't be here. We wouldn't be able to capture this story in the way we had without their support. So thank you, of course, to Xander. And hey, thanks, Takeda. Hey. Hey, hey, hey. One of the things I think is wonderful is that we can um, bring more people into this meeting, which I think is is fantastic. Mm-hmm. So um, you all will get a glimpse of what uh, some of the conversations have been like here at HFA, and uh, so you can feel more and more a part of it. So we'll be back with a further conversation uh, at HFA. We're actually going to talk to a circle of blood brothers. A whole circle of them. A whole circle, and they're going to be sitting in a circle. Probably not. But anyway, um, a panel of blood brothers talking about um, joint health, uh, journey to joint health, journey to healthier joints, um, which was a joint health activity challenge that was in the fall of 2019 before the pandemic. If you can remember back that far. So we're bringing these guys back together to have a conversation about it and we're excited to share it with you. So stick around, make sure you subscribe so that thing pops up. That's true. You don't even have to think about it. And you can also, well, you know what, with that, Amy, that is all (laughs) for this episode. Remember to subscribe, yes, as Amy subscribe. suggested, to the right. Bloodstream Podcast, wherever you listen. If it's on Apple, if it's yep. on Spotify, if it's on Downcast, there's like a, a lot of them. There's wherever you so listen, sub- subscribe on multiple platforms. We won't stop you. <laughs> Share this episode with family, friends, colleagues, people you graduated middle school with, maybe a Boy Scout troop leader in your area. Perhaps there's a bakery owner who really would love a podcast. I don't know, but get creative and share this with anyone who you think may benefit. And as Amy said, subscribe to the Bloodstream Podcast so that you can be sure to have the next episode delivered directly to you the moment it goes live. And email us at mailbag at bloodstreammedia.com with your thoughts about this episode. We would love to hear uh, what you thought about Xander and Adar. We would love to hear that stuff. If you have a health topic you'd like us to discuss a little bit more, or if there's a guest or an expert that you're dying to hear from, please email us at mailbag at bloodstreammedia.com or connect with us on social media. You'll find Bloodstream Media on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can also find Patrick and myself on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, or even LinkedIn if you do LinkedIn if you're very professional like I am. You can also reach out to Amy to ask her questions about Marriott's. She <laughs> loves to talk about the hotel industry in particular, eggs. the wonderful brand of Marriott. Hotel eggs. I am your host, Patrick James Lynch. And I am your other host, Amy Board. And until next time, take self-care of yourself. And bye, everybody. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.